and welcome to Kitty Talks, the podcast that shows you how to build a life in alignment with your soul. I'm your host, Kitty Waters, serial entrepreneur and co-creator of the Network for Transformational Leaders. Each week, I interview top thought leaders that are changing the world. They share their life stories on tips on how you can find your purpose. We all have a gift we can bring to the world. Do you feel dead to life? Like there's more to it, but you don't know where to start. Perhaps you don't fit in and you can't understand why. Are you pushing all the time and getting nowhere? Do you long to finally be sure which is the right path for you? This podcast is sponsored by my Do Your Dharma course. This eight-week online course, self-study, shows you how to find your purpose. The course demystifies the subject of Dharma and shows you that by following your highest excitement, you can unlock your greatest potential and create the life of your dreams. Go to www.kittytalks.com forward slash do your Dharma. Without further ado, let's dive into the next episode. you are going to hear from Beth Kempton. She is an award-winning author and entrepreneur. She's written two books, The Wabi Sabi, which is her latest book, which is all about Japanese wisdom for the perfectly imperfect life, and Freedom Seeker, which was published by Hay House. She's also a Japanologist, so she really understands all about the Japanese culture. And you're going to hear her life story in this podcast. And she's a really great example of someone who, for me, was riding the dynamic flow of life. Like you'll hear her describe how she went from one situation to the next to the next. She literally was so in the universal flow of life. And then she also describes when things didn't work and what happened and how she changed course. So without further ado, let's dive in. So hello and welcome to Kitty Talks. We share inspirational life stories that empower you to create yours. And this week I have another amazing guest who is going to tell us their fantastic transformational story. Beth Kenton is a freedom seeker. I love that. She's going to get her to go into more detail about that. She is an entrepreneur and an author and she's literally just birthed this book, which we're going to talk about, Wabi Wabi Sabi, which I think is a fantastic name. Um, And she's also a Japanologist. Did I say that right, Beth? (laughs) Yes. So we're going to get Beth to tell us all about what a Japanologist is. But Beth, welcome to Kitty Talks. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story with us. It's my very great pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you for giving us this opportunity. It's quite rare that we get to reflect on our own stories in the kind of format of a conversation like this. And I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, and I can't wait to hear all of the amazing synchronicities that have happened in your life. Like I can, we just had a short chat before you came on air and, you know, you're doing some really interesting stuff. So would you mind just um, for the benefit of the tape and for the people listening who may or may not know about your work, can you just give us a sort of overview of what you're currently doing? 
Yes, hello everyone. Um, I am Beth Kempton. I am a writer. I am a businesswoman. I have three businesses which I run with my husband and co-founders. They're Do What You Love, which helps people very much in line with what Kitty's doing uh, to find what lights them up and pursue that in a way that they can fill their lives doing what they love. And I also am co-founder of makeartthatsells.com and makeitindesign.com which help artists and designers to flourish in their creative lives. I'm also a Japanologist, as you said, which really means by training, I am a scholar of the Japanese language and culture. And I'm sure we'll get to talking a lot more about that because it's very random that I ended up doing that. But it's been a huge part of my life, real area of bliss for me. I'm also mother to two young children under five, and I try and bring positivity to the world and live my life in an adventurous way. You are a busy lady, two children, three businesses, husband, just moving house, just launching a book. <laughs> <laughs> and you look really chilled out, so I'm impressed. <laughs> well, the reason I'm moving house is for a simpler life by the sea, because I'm so busy. <laughs> I'm constantly evolving, that's what it is. Would you mind... Um, because one of the things we love to do here on Kitty Talks is, you know, I believe, actually, without getting too woo-woo, I believe we all choose our path before we come down. And um, I'd love to know your story. So obviously, I know you studied Japanese at university. Like, tell us a little bit about how you got into what you're doing today. Well, I think there have been three real moments of transition in my life. And maybe um, it would be good to focus on those because they, if when when you look Kind of from a um, bird's eye view, it could my life could look quite complicated in that I've spent time in a lot of different areas of work and um, different industries and use different skills, but they really do mesh together. And those transition points have kind of shifted me between those different industries and and opportunities. And I definitely don't see it as linear. Like looking back, the I keep coming back to the same things in different ways, which means nothing is ever wasted. So that's been a big learning for me. But if I start with the very first one, it actually happened at 17 before I ever even thought about the Japanese language. And I was on a boat in the middle of the Bay of Biscay, um, racing in the Katasak Ships race. And we'd just been through a massive storm and we'd come out the other side and everything was calm and Everyone was below deck and it was just me at the helm looking around and it was just like a mill pond and dolphins jumping around and really beautiful. And I, in my life at that moment, I was in the middle of my high school years. So just about to go into my final year and then off to university, I was doing four A-levels, very, very academic, on track to go to Cambridge and study economics and become an accountant. And it was completely mapped out at 17. I knew exactly what was going to happen in my life because that's what everyone told me I should do. And then I was just sat here on this boat in the middle of the Bay of Biscay, having this beautiful moment with the dolphins, thinking, I want to feel like this in my life, like every day, you know, part of, connected to something much bigger than myself, you know, really inspired seeing the beauty of the world and on an adventure. And I don't think I'm going to get a whole lot of that um, if I stick to this path that I've planned out for myself. So I, I realised in that moment I didn't want to be an accountant, which 
was really quite life-changing, even though it sounds very small. It's made a huge difference to decide that then. Um, and that I didn't know what on earth I wanted to do and that I was okay with that. And then I just got on with my amazing adventure in the Baker scale and came back home and told my parents that all the plans we'd so carefully laid were out the window. And I was going to go to university and study something that would take me on an adventure. And how did you come up with Japanese? Like Japanese? Well, um, as a uh, know, teenager who's just had a massive aha, aha moment, might do, um, I looked at universities and said, well, if I study a language, I can go and live in another country for a year. But I hadn't done any languages at A-level. And universities wouldn't accept you if you hadn't done a language at A-level, unless you wanted to study something insanely difficult, like Japanese, Chinese, Russian, or Arabic. And so I did Eeny, Meeny, Miny, Moe. No. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> that really is leaving it in the lap of the gods, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's so funny because I now, having studied it and having kind of watched what because I you know at my university there were people studying all those languages and I've obviously seen their career trajectories and I know 100% Japanese chose me like it was my language I am not a linguist except I feel like I was Japanese in a former life like it's it's been hard work but it's I've always been able had a really good ear for it which makes no sense at all and just felt really connected to it so sometimes being it to chance it's not quite as as random as it may seem, I think. And then I went to university and, you know, all my friends were doing essays and stuff like that. And I was sat there trying to learn how to say hello, literally didn't know anything. And everyone else around me had some connection to Japan. So I was a real kind of outsider and was really bad at it, like really bad. And I got to the end of my first year. We went away in our second year. And um, my tutors called me in and said, we don't think you're you're good enough to go you've nearly failed your language exams and you know we're just worried about you going to the other side of the world on your own. and I was like what this was the whole point <laughs> don't you understand and so I convinced them to let me go and I did and I remember just so clearly getting off the plane at Kansai International Airport going oh my god like they actually speak that language in my textbook I've not be learning <laughs> and I lived with a, a homestay family both with a very heavy Kyoto dialect didn't speak any English and was just really thrown in at the deep end and it was amazing I felt so free and I just there's something really magical about Japan I don't know if you've been no I haven't it's um, definitely on my list you? no I haven't I'd love to like I love the culture is the thing that intrigues me yeah and it's just something in the air that it's very hard to put your finger on um, but I always felt like I could do anything in Japan I mean I had my own tv show in Japan I mean what <laughs> just you you I felt like I could do anything even though I was really bad at the language to start with and I just threw myself into it completely which is also another real lesson I've, I've learned you know you can learn anything you can you know really put your energy and attention on something and soak it all in and and in the end I ended up getting a master's degree in Japanese and I went back off uni and I worked there for, for many years and yeah so that was a real that was my first turning point that got me there on that big adventure 
Well, that's incredible because they say, don't they, for languages especially, like total immersion is the best the best way because you just have to adapt and you just, you know, you have to totally surround yourself in the culture and the language to, to start to tune into it. It still takes takes guts, actually, Beth. Yes, a lot of guts. <laughs> or just just teenage complete lack of fear, <laughs> maybe. Um, yeah, and it's a really interesting point that you pick up on because there's something also in Japanese language um, which makes it so beautiful, but also so difficult, um, which is to do with that immersion so I have never met somebody who's a true who's truly fluent a Japanese who hasn't lived and worked in the country because there's something about the language that you cannot pick up from the textbook and that is they have this um, beautiful phrase kuki or yomu which means to read the air and you like in a meeting people will say something but what they're saying is just the tip of the iceberg and the real meaning is unsaid and it's not as simple as body language because Japanese people don't actually move very much when they talk. But, you know, their gestures and movements are very, very subtle. But there is, it's, you definitely hear with your whole body when you're really in a conversation in Japanese. And I think that's why I was so interested in writing my new book, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Um, but because it's so, it's the same as with life. Like you can read all the books and take all the classes and listen to all the podcasts you want. But you have to be in it, immersed and listening with your whole body and all your senses to really experience and get the most out of it in life. So that was always a really big thing for me with the language. And I think possibly how I ended up learning it well, um, because I was just so tuned into everything in, in that first year. Wow. And so are you fluent in Jap- Japanese now? <laughs> yes, I'm, I, I am. I'm, I'm in I'm rusty for, in terms of having not lived there for the last time I lived there was five years ago. Um, you know, I've visited um, many times and my Japanese is completely fine, but I compare myself to when I had just finished my master's, memorized a dictionary, was training at the UN, that kind of thing. So, you know, having had two children since and um, lots of other things going on and living in England, you know, my Japanese is fine, but not at that level. And I think that's another thing I had to really work on myself with writing this book was to not be judgmental of my own ability comparing it to the past. You know, as soon as I got, I went back twice in the research for this book and as soon as I was back in there, you know, I'm sat there having conversations with Japanese monks in Japanese and stuff and it's completely fine. But I know that I used to know a more sophisticated word and I have to just go, you can only do what you can do. You could go back to university and study for another five years, but by then someone else will have written this book. You've got the tools, ample tools that you need right now to do what needs to be done. And I think I, that's something I've, I had to really work on with this book. And also I'm not Japanese. And I think it's so easy for us when we're trying to, to carve a new path or, or do something different that we will never be perfect at it. That's, we just won't. You can keep going until you're better and better and better but at some point you have to go I'm good enough to have a go and I'm going to try and so it's almost like writing writing the book was an exploration of what the book's about without really realizing it yeah absolutely so you so you had this beautiful moment of bliss and calm in your teenage years you went on to chuck yourself out of your comfort zone study Japanese live in Japan get a master's 
tell me, I'm dying to know the next bit of the story. What happened next? <laughs> well, I, I had a series of very strange um, coincidences with jobs. I think I've had one job interview in my entire life, but I have done many jobs um, because they've always been a, a phone call or a recommendation or something like that. So, so when I was living in Japan, I... Um, I got into the world of sport and I've interpreted for a huge amount of very well-known athletes and teams. And, and my thing was interpreting in a competitive sports environment, like the Olymp I worked at the Olympics and the World Cup and those kinds of things. And so I got into the world of sport. Um, and then I, I, I worked at the 2002 FIFA World Cup, um, which was co-hosted by Career in Japan, which was amazing. Um, and then came back and did my master's. And at the end of my master's year, I got a phone call out of the blue saying, this is UNICEF headquarters in New York. Would you like to go and work um, at the Olympic Youth Camp at the Athens Olympics in Greece? And I'm basically back being a student, right, living in one-room student accommodation going, this is UNICEF in New York, phoning me up. <laughs> like, what? Um, and so that had come about because the person who, is, who was on the phone, who's still a very good friend of mine, um, was the head of sport um, at UNICEF and she had worked very closely with a lady who I had worked with on my previous project which was Libya's bid to host the FIFA World Cup and that I won't go into any detail on that because it's the craziest bid you can imagine but that opportunity had come about because the person who put that bid together had been one of my bosses in Japan and needed someone he could rely on, who was comfortable in foreign cultures, to go in to Libya and in four months get their government to put together a, a football bid that could go to the um, um, part of the World Cup. And so it, that was completely nothing to do with language skills or anything like that. It was just trust and knowing that I could get a job done and deliver when the, my boss wasn't even in the country. And then that itself led to this other job at UNICEF, which was a really, this isn't even one of my transition moments, but <laughs> that going into the world of UNICEF was a really big thing for me because um, all the work that, I mean, UNICEF stands for the United Nations Children's Fund, and their whole thing was about helping children fulfill their potential. And in my time there, when I worked very closely with some of the biggest sports brands in the world, you know, leveraging them to, to help um, UNICEF's work. I went to many, many countries all over the world on field visits and to, you know, some of the the places where people are living in the most devastating conditions um, and just learned so much about life. And looking back now, I can see that my thing is helping people to achieve their potential. And in that time, it happened to be children, you know, and now it's, it's older people, much more my age. But um, that was a really interesting learning for me. And, and that led on to what became my second transition moment, which was about 10 years ago. Um, so from so when I was at UNICEF, I ended up working on London 2012's um, International Social Legacy from the Olympic Games, and I was responsible for um, the, the legacy from UNICEF's point of view. And again, a guy who I had worked with in, my, in a previous role became the person in charge of England's bid to host the FIFA World Cup in 2018. Um, now, if you don't like sport, this might sound like it's completely irrelevant to you, but if, if you really want to listen to the, the, the principles underneath it, which are just about relationships and, um, you know, being open to moving and trying new things, because he was 
So he's putting together this bid for England to host the World Cup. And he's working with the Football Association. There's a really big budget. Um, and I said to him, look, I think it's really important that you build a legacy plan into your bid because you can. And because, you know, if England gets the World Cup, it's one of the most phenomenal opportunities for our country to do good in the world with children. Um, and so he said, that sounds amazing. Do you want to do it? And gave me a job. Um, <laughs> and so I was working on that. And that, that led to my second transition moment where two things happened at once. One was we put together an amazing bit for this country to host the World Cup. And we pitched it to FIFA along with all the other countries. And we went to Zurich and there was David Beckham and the Prime Minister and Prince William and we did this amazing pitch for them. And we got one vote and we went out in the first round. And it was devastating. And what we found out, we suspected then and have found out since is the truth was that the people who were voting at FIFA, the old guys, were taking bribes left, right and centre. You know, most of them have been fired. Some of them are in prison or under FBI investigation. I mean, it was unbelievably corrupt. And I realised at that moment, if I was going to go further in that career, helping people in that particular way, I would have to work with people like that who I fundamentally didn't agree with the way that they were in the world. So that was a really big thing for me. And at the same time, just a few months earlier, <laughs> Again, quite randomly, I had gone taken myself on an art retreat in California, which was really does didn't really make any sense because I wasn't an artist and I didn't really do any painting. But I read a book, a wonderful book called Taking Flight by an artist called Kelly Ray Roberts. And I read it and I just thought, I want to meet this woman. So I went on her, she had a website then, even like 10 years ago. And I went on there, realized she's teaching this workshop, booked the workshop, and then realized it was in San Jose like several thousand kilometers away <laughs> so I just got on a plane I got on a plane and I was sitting there on the plane going what are you doing like you're going to workshop full of artists and you have like what what you live work in the world of sport you're too busy you don't have time this is really expensive what what are you doing and I went and it was absolutely amazing I was surrounded by like a hundred creative women in the shadow of this redwood forest all just there because they loved making stuff and they loved life and all these things and I remember again it's that feeling thing I was sat there in the dining room looking around going I want to feel like I feel in this environment in my work and I worked in the sports industry where it's all about money and competition and male dominating that stuff and this was the absolute antithesis of this but I realized also in that moment that so many of those women would go back to where they come from all over America mostly and they would just keep doing their art as a hobby because they had absolutely no belief that they could turn that into their work. Mm. And I, I felt then, I wonder if there's something I could do bringing my business experience to these women and helping them. But I didn't have any idea how. I just had this idea. And then the whole thing happened with the corrupt people at FIFA. And I was like, now's the time. I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do it. And so I did it. And that was the second turning point when I started my business called Do What You Love. And and mostly made it up as I went along the first year. I mean, I did. <laughs> oh, it's it's so funny. I mean, I didn't even have a blog. I didn't even have a blog, and was kind of a pioneer in the e-course industry without knowing. <laughs> what I'm getting, what I'm getting, Beth. Sorry, I have to share this because what I'm really getting from listening to you is you're somebody that was just really in the moment, like you, and like 
obviously we, we I said shared with you that I've studied Dharma and Dharma is all about being the flow universal flow of life you know and when we are using the things doing the things that we love you're kind of in that flow of life so that when you're describing the synchronicities that happen for you to get jobs it's like you're riding that flow of life and you, you carried on riding that until you know life presented you with such a turning point where you were like actually I'm not I don't want to go this way anymore because it doesn't work for me and my values and everything else um and then obviously the ideas have all filtered through to you to what to do next so it's yeah about being present about listening about doing the things that you love is all the things that I'm hearing from you so it's really fascinating hearing your journey I love that you shared that because I think you're absolutely right. And also, I followed the next interesting thing. I literally did. You know, I wasn't married. I had no kids. I just followed the next interesting thing. Not really having an agenda about where's this going to take me? What's this going to mean for my career in 10 years' time? Not even is this going to make me money? I mean, the job's all, you know, well paid, but it was never really a factor. Um, and just going, oh, that sounds interesting. Yes, I'm in, you know. And... So, we, so I did that, but then the third transition moment is the complete opposite. It happened when I was not in flow whatsoever. So life was like, hang on a minute, you used to know how to do this flow thing, and then what happened? <laughs> should, should I talk about that one briefly? Because I think there's is much to learn. Yeah, I think, you, I think we learn more. It's almost like the universe slams the door in our face and says, you're going the wrong way. <laughs> Change direction. Yes, absolutely. So the third transition moment, and this is really strange. I don't, I don't, it's, it's actually, it's really interesting because I don't talk about myself like this that often in, you know, sharing my story at this level of, um, of detail. And it's, it's a really interesting thing to do. And actually, I really encourage listeners to, to have a go as if they're talking to you because it's, it's amazing what pops up in your head as having been important. So with the third one, um, I was running Do What You Love and we'd, got a really good reputation produce of producing e-courses. So we'd figured out how to do it very early on. Um, obviously, everyone runs e-courses now, but they, there was a time when they didn't and they wanted to and they didn't know how to and they were terrified of technology. And so we partnered with several different people along the way as their producer and put them out in the world. Um, some of those partnerships we still have, some of them we don't, um, but we have grown our business in that way. So I teach some of our courses, but also we work with amazing artists and designers and our agents. So our business had been growing quite fast. Our team had been growing fast. And I, I wouldn't at all say we had been following the money, but we were definitely putting our attention into the areas that were making the most money. And I think sometimes that feels like the easiest thing to do. You know, it's working, let's do more of it. Um, but I had completely taken my attention away from my own part of the business, the bits where I'm the teacher, the bits where I'm doing my own research, the bits where I'm interviewing people and growing myself. And I was literally doing a job of producing courses for other people, um, which isn't really what I set out to do, um, even though it's you know vaguely connected. And then there just came a day and I'll never forget it when I was supposed to be going to London to speak on this um, panel, uh, this big um, debate being hosted by Barclays Bank. And I was very heavily pregnant um, and my toddler was screaming in the room next door. Um, and I was waiting for my My mum was there to go up and see her because I could hardly move. And um, I couldn't, 
And I wasn't prepared for this debate, which is very unlike me. I'm always prepared. Um, so I was very nervous about it because it was a big stage. Um, I was running late, which also, you know, adds to the nerves. And then I couldn't do up my trousers. <laughs> and I was just like, on top of everything, I can't even do up my trousers. And I just, it's like, and I just, you know, like collapse on my bedroom floor, which, and you know, so many people, all the good people, Elizabeth Gilbert, everyone, you know, Cheryl Strait, all the good people have had a bedroom floor at the moment or a bathroom floor at the moment, right? Um, and that was mine. And I just saw my, it's really weird. I kind of had this vision um, where it was not a vision like I was somewhere else, but I was seeing this, this girl in front of me on the Trans-Siberian Railway. Um, watching humpback whales in Antarctica and these kind of adventures going on. And I was, I kind of got caught up in this movie um, and then realised, obviously, that was me, right, from like 15 years ago, having these adventures and absolutely looking free and happy out over um, whatever she was doing in Bhutan, up a mountain or whatever. And then I was like, hang on a minute, what happened? I was like, snap back to reality going, what happened? Here I am on my bedroom floor, running a company called Do What You Love, creating my own business, creating my own life, and yet I feel more trapped than I have ever felt in my whole life. What's going on? And also that's me. So she knows how to feel free, right? So I must know how to feel free, but something has gone wrong along the way. And I'm in this situation and I don't want to be here. I want to be over there. And I, I was, I kind of, realized that I realized that that I wanted to feel in a different way and be in a different position but I didn't know what to do about it because you know I had obligations and I was very pregnant I was just about to have a baby and all this stuff and I realized I just needed to take a tiny like just have a bit of space a little break and I mean like the smallest space like I'm actually just gonna walk outside I'm gonna stand on the grass barefoot and look at the evening sun before I run to my train I've managed to do my puzzle up. <laughs> and I just kind of, I think I just breathed a bit. And then um, the next day, you know, the, the debate was over and everything. And I think I like took the morning off and went for a waddle down by the sea um, and just slowly built in a little bit of, of space here and there. And then um, I talked to my husband about it and he was like, we're just about to have a baby. Why don't you take proper time off? With my first baby, I took four days off. Wow. Horrendous. I don't know what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. When she was 10 weeks old, we drove the entire length of England up to Edinburgh to produce and film an online course when she was 10 weeks old. I'm just like, what? Just crazy. So this time I took <laughs> I took five months off, um, which, you know, with your own business, that's quite a long time. And I literally didn't send an email in five months. And I it was absolute bliss I had my baby and it, I don't know if they're connected but the difference in the birth experience was unbelievable with the second baby when I was knew I was having this time off I walked into the hospital and I had her within an hour with no drugs nothing just like the closest I can imagine to what a blissful birth is compared to three days in the hospital with everything that I'm before so that was kind of interesting for me but um, I had this five months off and I just walked with her up and down the sea and had a really nice summer and things. And I, but I couldn't get this question out of my head. Like, what, what, what does it mean to feel free? Why, how did I go from feeling free to not feeling free? 
And how do I get back there? And I was, you know, it was nice being off, but I also had the reality of I'm going to go back to work. So, so what is this? And and it became a, a really big question. And so I actually started talking to my online community about it because I was, you know, still um, had connections with this my online community. And I started to gather other people's experiences of the same thing, like when they felt trapped and, and if they were still feeling trapped or if they felt free, like what they'd done and how it changed. And I started to see a pattern in what people were saying. And basically, it, it became this really big idea that I was like, this is a book. Like, I think this is a book. Because my brain likes to do something, right? So I actually, by the end of that five months, had my entire book proposal finished. Um, and I came back from maternity leave with a book deal with Hay House, which was really unexpected and only happened because I made that space and let myself kind of sit with this really big question about my life for quite a long time. And and that was really, I, I really, um, I wrote myself free with that book, which is called Freedom Seeker. Wonderful. Yeah, we, oh, well, we have to talk about it offline, but I'd love to talk to you about the Freedom Seeker and the, the Dharma connections, because I think I can see parallels between when you're doing your Dharma, when you're in that flow, and then obviously when you're off track, when you're not, like you were saying that you were doing things that weren't your passion they weren't your joy they weren't the things that you were set out to do and you ended up feeling trapped so um the correlation between doing the bit that you came for the bit that you're really passionate about and the bit that really lights you up yes i would love to have that conversation i will send you a copy and then maybe we can it, you know it's it's really funny you say that because what happened that that getting that book as is always the way getting the book deal is the thing that we get excited about and then you actually have to write a book and I, and I was like whoa okay I had six months to write a book um with a tiny new baby and you know just come back to work and I basically spent the first four months writing an excel document and moving chapter structure around and going I don't know what I'm doing and then, you know, I had all this information, research and stuff, but I had no idea how to turn this book. And then my husband, again, bless him, looked over my shoulder one day and he's like, that's the same Excel document you've been playing with for like weeks. You need to go on an adventure. And so he booked me a ticket to Costa Rica where I'd never been. Oh, wow. And it it was extraordinary. So I, I wanted to stay. Yeah, yeah. And I, I decided I was wanted to stay in a, like a, yoga hotel but it was peak season for yoga retreats and stuff and everywhere was packed out and I um found this amazing hotel with a huge outdoor yoga studio overlooking the jungle and the ocean and all this and I was like I want to go there and so I got in touch with them and they're like no we've got no room and I was like oh please I'm trying to write a book I really need to come and they found their room and then when I got there I, I swear to you this is true the manager came up to me and she said, welcome, welcome to Costa Rica. And um, everyone else in the hotel was just cancelled because you're the only guest. <laughs> what? And as you're here to write your book, <laughs> and as you're here to write your book, and there's no other guests, we, we we thought you might like to have your writing table in the middle of that yoga studio, the most beautiful yoga studio in the world, overlooking the jungle. <laughs> it was unbelievable. And then I had this um, Kundalini yoga class on the first day. And I had this amazing, I think I can only describe it as a spiritual experience that some, a Kundalini teacher since he heard me tell the story said they think it was a spontaneous Kundalini awakening, which 
even for me now, sounds really strange, but you know, from what they've said, it makes sense. And I wrote about that in the final chapter of Freedom Seeker. But um, what often, when I researched what that was, what often happens afterwards um, is it's basically a massive explosion of energy. And afterwards, people often go into a really deep depression or they're incredibly creative. Mm. And in the I and the day after from there, within the next five days, I wrote thirty thousand words of that book. Wow! Well, I have to say, there's somebody out there looking, <laughs> so, looking after you and putting you in the right place. That's fantastic. <laughs> I think this book has been brewing for twenty years. Um, really, as I know, obviously, this is I've the latest. Always book, so for our felt, listeners, just tell me it's called Wabi Sabi. What is the It's Japanese this. wisdom for a perfectly imperfect life. And for anyone who's been to Japan, they'll know that there's just something about that country which is different from certainly anywhere else I've been. And I've been to many, many, many countries in the world and nearly every country in Asia. Um, and there is, there is an amazing underlying sense of calm in the country. There is an incredible aesthetic. There are tiny pockets of beauty everywhere. It's not like there's a few people who have this beautiful aesthetic sense. There is something where the way that people live their lives is beautiful. And of course, there are exceptions and it's very difficult to talk about a culture without generalizing. But there, there is definitely something there which um, is quite arresting, actually, um, and is very difficult to put your finger on. And so there's, there's that going on. And then over here, back in my world where I'm, you know, supporting thousands of people to kind of follow their dreams and come up against all these obstacles and stuff. A really big thing that you'll know very well that's a problem for people is confidence and fear. And all of that is rooted in looking at other people's lives and other people's successes and other people's Instagram accounts and thinking, I can't do it. I can't do it as well as them. I can't do it because they've done it. I can't do it because their version looks different to mine and mine will never look like that. I can't do it because I don't have the money. I don't have their background. I don't have their connections, whatever. We spend so much time looking outwards and it's, it's amazing to look outwards. We're so lucky to have access to so much inspiration and, and stimulus. But I think it's really important to understand what our tolerance for that external stimulus is at any point in our life. And if you're trying to make a really big change, you know, you'll know it's so important to be very careful about what stimulus you allow into your mind and into your heart, because it, it can be the absolute difference between something really working for you and you never getting it off the ground. And so I've seen this, this thing and it really, when I kind of thought about it, it came down to the fact that so many of us are, try, are chasing some idea of perfection. And, and it might be because of what we see. It might be because of what we've been told. You know, we live in this world of shoulds and all these things. And I just wondered if there was something in the Japanese culture that, that could translate. You know, that cult, the, their culture has been alive and thriving for hundreds of years. And there was this beautiful aesthetic philosophy beneath it. I really wanted to investigate and wondered if we could. There are life lessons that we could apply um, in a, in our own lives. So, you know, for me too, I do exactly the same thing. <laughs> of course, I do. You know, bringing out a new book, for example, that's a huge, vulnerable, creative endeavor, and you can't help looking at right other people's book launches and other people's things about Japan. I, you know, I said before about this whole thing. I'm not Japanese. Who am I to write this book? And all that stuff, you know, comes up for all of us. Um, 
But then on top of that, very interestingly, um, I think probably about 10 years ago, there were quite a few books seemed to come out in a flurry about this word wabi-sabi. And interestingly, this year, WGSN, which is the world's leading trend forecaster, said that wabi-sabi is one of the global design trends, 2018. And I'm like, you're in sync. That's lovely and interesting timing, but I kind of think everyone is missing the point because we in, we in the West have been using the word wabi-sabi to describe a certain look um, on objects, a certain kind of, like I said before, this imperfect beauty. Um, but Japanese people don't use the word wabi-sabi as an adjective, right? You can't say a wabi-sabi teacup. I mean, they would just look at you and go, what are you talking about? But you know, in the way that we use it in the West, you could absolutely say, I mean, my mug is kind of wonky and not perfect. And some people would say that's wabi-sabi. But the look of the thing is not wabi-sabi as a Japanese person knows it. And I really wanted, and I knew that, I understood that, but I didn't know what it was. I knew what it wasn't, but I didn't know what it was. And so all of those things came together as another idea for book. And thankfully, the publishers thought it was a good idea as well. And I got the go ahead to go and do this investigation. But I didn't have the book when I when I did my proposal. I had my hypothesis and my ideas and realized you know, why it's timely, incredibly timely. But I didn't know the answer. And I spent months and months, beginning of this year, I, I went back to Japan a couple of times, spent lots of time in conversation with hundreds of people about what does wabi-sabi mean to you? What is it? And if every conversation you have with a Japanese person starts with, it's so difficult to explain. And wabi-sabi is actually in the Japanese language. Every Japanese person recognizes it, but it's not in the dictionary. Can you imagine an English word that we all know and is part of who we are and is not in the dictionary? Like, isn't that fascinating? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I went to find out what it is. And I, you know, and, and I, you know, I, it will only ever be my interpretation based on this kind of synthesis of what so many people from different backgrounds have shared and my own experience over 20 years and all of this. But that what I found is that there are really beautiful life lessons to be taken from Japanese culture. And that's what's in the book. So I'm excited to share it. Yeah, and thank you. And you are sharing it. Like Beth has very kindly uh, given us a copy we can give away. So if you're listening to this interview now, it will be Saturday and it's just been released and we are running a competition the week of Beth's interview coming out. So look at my Instagram, we'll tag Beth in it too. And we will have all of Beth's details in the show notes of this uh, interview. But if you want to enter the competition to win the book, we will have all the details on Instagram. And we'll probably run it for about a week or a week and a half. And then we'll announce the winner. But Beth, I want to say thank you, first of all. Um, Thank you so much for coming on. And like you'd obviously thought about the kind of pivotal moments in your life, which was really evident. And I think that's really beautiful for people listening because... You know, listen to those pivotal moments. They're trying to tell you something. When you get those feelings, when you get those spiritual awakenings, you know, they are signposts that you should be looking at and you should be watching and you should be changing direction and tweaking dependent on what the sign is telling you. But yeah, I want to say thank you, Beth, for coming on Kitty Talks and sharing your story with us. And we'll make sure we have all your details in the show notes so people can connect with you on Instagram. Um, when is the is the book out now? The book is out on August the 30th. It's available for pre-order on Amazon. It says Wabi Sabi. 
and I'm Beth Kenton and I wrote it for you so I hope you really enjoyed it yes and we would love your feedback on this interview. thank you for having me Kitty yeah no thank you for having you too Beth it's really I knew that we'd have a great conversation just because we're in a very kind of similar you know come from a similar ethos um but we will see you next week again on Kitty Talks with another amazing guest bye-bye so thank you for listening to the Kitty Talks podcast. I know you will have really enjoyed that conversation with Beth. And I do hope you enter the competition to win her book. I also hope that you join us and apply for Do Your Dharma. We are going to be relaunching Do Your Dharma. So if you are stuck, you know there's more to life than you can see and feel. And you know you have a purpose, but you're not sure how to get there. You're not sure how to find the right path for you. Then this course, this community is for you. We help you really go deep and understand your talents, your innate gifts, your passions, and then how you can basically bring those into the world and serve the world and start doing your dharma and riding the universal flow of life. So if you want more information, go to kittytalks.com forward slash do your dharma this podcast was sponsored by my do your dharma course create a life so good that you pinch yourself this eight-week online course demystifies dharma and shows you how to tune in to why you're really here go to www.kittytalks.com forward slash do your dharma